Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is altering your brain chemistry. This is entering your brain through your ears. Thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Brad Listy. I'm your host, and I am sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I hope you're well. Things are good here. Uh, today, I figured I would start out by reading some tweets uh, some of my personal tweets from my at Brad Listy account. I hope that sounds like a reasonable possibility. So uh, here we go. Here are some tweets. I wonder if Pema Chodron's friends ever refer to her by the nickname Chode. Involuntarily whispered, quote, There's no way, at a barely audible volume, realized it, then realized I had no idea what it was in reference to. Actually, uh, you know what? I am looking here at my Twitter feed and I just found uh, a kind of narrative 
Twitter thread from a few days ago where I was tweeting during a recent trip uh, to Denver, Colorado. I was in Denver last weekend visiting some friends for about 36 hours, and uh, I tweeted several times during the trip, so why don't I read uh, some of those? In particular from the portion of my trip where I was uh, flying back from Denver to Los Angeles and had uh, delays. So I figure this way you can follow along as if you know you were there with me, at my side, on the road, traveling uh, through space and time. Okay, so uh, here we go. Here are some uh, tweets of mine from a short trip to Denver. At airport, flight delayed. Girl sitting next to me is reading The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Should I ask her for help? Just bought a bottle of water and lost it within five minutes of purchase. Asked girl if she had seen my water. Girl seemed frightened slash perplexed. There is a bearded, barefooted guy seated on the floor nearby in full lotus with guitar. Seems wasted. I feel, quote, emotionally attracted to him. Might start walking around the terminal in aimless fashion, asking random people if they've seen my water. Have now boarded plane, stuffed into window seat beside large man. Feel claustrophobic, dehydrated, factory farmed, bereft. My dream is to be the only passenger on a commercial flight. Landed in LA, uneventful flight, slept with mouth open, spotlit by overhead reading light, breathing recycled air, try to visualize this. Should I try to start a sing-along on this shuttle bus? Okay, so uh, there you have it, folks. Those are some tweets of mine uh, from the at Brad Listy account. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you found it uh, edifying in some way. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, the next order of business involves the TNB book club, the Nervous Breakdown book club. For those of you who are not yet aware, the nervousbreakdown.com uh, is my online culture magazine and literary community. And we have our own monthly book club for only nine ninety nine a month. Uh, that's less than the cost of uh, a movie ticket. Uh, you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days. And the books are handpicked by Jonathan Evison and myself. And better yet, all book club authors appear on this program. So you can read the book and then uh, hear the author in conversation with me or vice versa. Uh, this month, we're featuring the new novel from Matt Bell. It is called In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods. How's that for a title? In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods. It's available now uh, or imminently from the good people at Soho Press. And because Matt has already appeared on this program for a full hour-long conversation, uh, I talked to him briefly just the other day. Uh, just to get a sense of his brain as his novel launches uh, into the universe. So here he is for just a few minutes, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matt Bell, and his new novel, once again, is called In the House Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods. I'm, uh, I'm at home in, in Marquette. Um, where last time I talked to you, I was in Ann Arbor. I lived there, so we moved since then. I'm in my office. Uh, so I have an office on the second floor where, you know, I do like 90% of my work and writing. Um, so yeah, uh, at home in the office. Okay. So you're at home. Cause I met, yeah, last time we talked, you were moving up to Northern Michigan. Right. Yeah. I think it was right before I moved. Yeah. Okay. And that's good. It's going well. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful here. It's beautiful. Um, you know, first year done at the university, everything went great. I had great students. Um, yeah, I can't complain at all. And now you've got, uh, this novel coming out. Yeah, um, uh, week from Tuesday, I guess. Yeah, so very soon. Okay, so I want to ask you something about this because uh, it's a it's fat it's a fabulous novel, correct? And there's a lot happening here that makes me think that uh, you took copious amounts of drugs when conceiving. It. <laughs> but you don't. Speak, um, but you don't seem like the kind of guy who's into taking copious amounts of drugs. No, no, I, I, I. Uh do not take copious amounts of drugs. Um, it's always funny because I feel like that's one of the, like, uh, pathways to, like, this kind of work. Like, if you make weird work, people assume, like, you're a weird guy or you do weird things. Um, and, you know, editing the closets where I publish a lot of really weird work, one of the things I learned was that some people who publish weird work are, like, weird people who do a lot of drugs or have weird experiences. Um, and the other half are, like, really normal people who just sit in their office every day and just go insane places in their mind. Um, and I think I'm the latter type. I uh, am not particularly weird. I have a really normal, like almost anal routine to my life, and uh, and weird stuff comes out of it. 
Okay, so yeah, where does where do you where does it come from? It comes from the anal routine, or like, do you have some sort of like, uh, you know, side of yourself that like doesn't necessarily get presented to the public that's really freaky and weird? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's part of it. You know, I um, I saw this great presentation that Brian Evanson gave a couple of years ago at AWP. Gave a talk as part of a panel on non-realist uh, literature, and he he talked about something that really like resonated with me. It sounded right. He was talking about growing up, in his case, growing up Mormon, um, and growing up in a culture that, like, literally believed that supernatural things were not really supernatural, right? Um, that angels came down and interacted with people, and um, that sort of thing was the, the literal truth of the world. That's not that's not a metaphor. That's how the world is. Um, and, you know, and I grew up in, in I grew up Catholic, but in a, in a similar sort of family. We talked about, like, the burning bush or something. Like, that's not a metaphor. That's a thing that happened, like, in history, right? <laughs> um, so, so in some ways, like, these weird worlds I write about are also, like, the kinds of places I grew up um, in, in a certain kind of mindset, right? There's a way to think about it that way. Um, and it's also the sort of what I like. I mean, always in the myth and fairy tales and um, fantastical things and sci-fi and that sort of thing. Um, so, I don't know. So, it's like a weird thing. Like, on one hand, it's just, like, sort of what interests me. But it also does, I think, have to do with um, the like mental mindset that I I was sort of raised among um, that people interacting with the supernatural is not actually there's there's a way in which that's like a shifted kind of realism, you know. Um, so I like people who are like setting characters in similar locations. Well, and I think you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like when you when you're raised with religion, you're raised with. Uh, or you're you're in contact with mythology from a young age. I was raised Catholic too, and then the other right. the other thing is that you're uh you know you're in the Midwest, and I was raised in the Midwest, and I know that as a child there, um, it does kind of force your hand from an imaginative perspective because there's not it's not like you're in the middle of Manhattan or something where there's a ton going on. <laughs> yeah. You know, you sort of have to like head out into the woods and make up your fun. You know. You know, and that's literally how I grew up. Like my brother and I, uh, his brother's two years younger than me. Him and I were out in the woods every day, you know, enacting these stories and pretending our treehouse was a dragon head and all this stuff, you know. Um, and that's very normal for me. You know, I remember camping a lot when I was a kid and going to like Sleeping Bear Dunes in Michigan. And there's, you know, a legend that sort of surrounds that that I was just fascinated with. Um, and, and, you know, at the same time, like kind of freaked out about it. It, was, it wasn't hard for me to imagine a world in which we sort of, like myths, you know, there's a Native American myth about how this area had sort of came to be. It's not, it wasn't hard for me to imagine that that could be true, right? Like, I'd, I always wanted that to be true and, like, science to be true. I wanted to have them both, you know? Um, I remember at a young age asking my parents all these weird questions about, like, the Garden of Eden and stuff. I was trying to, like, figure out how it could, like, possibly be real, you know? Um, I always wanted that, and I think so. Books are a nice place to, to get to. Sure. Yeah. And like this, uh, you know, with the novel coming out, you know, like uh, just a few days before publication, like how are you handling uh, the emotional content of that experience? Are you uh, are you nervous? Do you feel pretty zen about it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, both at different times. I think uh, in general, I often feel like none of it's real and it's not really happening. Um, so that helps a lot with being nervous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just complete denial. Right. Complete you know, denial. Of right. Reality. Yes. Absolutely. Whatever nice thing happens, I'm like, wow, that's that's amazing and abstract. That doesn't seem like it would ever happen. Um, so it's great. Like, I mean, really, uh, so impressive and phenomenal. There's above and beyond my wildest dreams of working as a publisher, really at every level. Um, and I just, I owe them a lot for it. So it's really great. I feel like I'm in really good hands. Um, 
I don't, I mean, there's anxiety about things, but for the most part, like I'm proud of the book. The, you know, the writing of the book's been done mostly for a year, you know, sure. um, I'm proud of the book. Uh, I feel like I, you know, did my best on it. I'm excited for it to be out and I'm glad, you know, people who've read it so far seem to be enjoying it. I, I really can't ask for more than that. That's fantastic. Right. And then you're heading out on tour soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm leaving, um, two, two days from now I'm leaving, I was driving to Detroit and fly to New York and, uh, and go from there. So, um, and then I'm off and on on tour for about six weeks. Wow. How many, how many cities are you doing as of right now? Do you know? Um, about 15, I think. Oh shit. That's a lot. So, yeah. so I'm doing, I'll be in New York for three events and then I'm, uh, five cities in Michigan and then I'm on the West coast for like five cities. And then I'm on the East coast for like five cities. Um, so yeah, kind of an intense amount of, of places, which is really exciting. I've never done sort of this extensive of, of touring and I'm, I'm you know really looking forward to it of course awesome well listen man it's uh it's a pleasure to feature you in the in the book club and i'm uh, i'm really happy for you congratulations on the success and, and best of luck on the road uh, thanks so much man really fantastic to get to be a part of it appreciate it all right that's matt bell go get his novel in the house upon the dirt between the lake and the woods you can find him online at mdbell.com that's m as in matt d is in uh, David, Daniel, I don't know what his middle name is, mdbell.com. You can also follow him on the Twitter at mdbell79. And, uh, hey, be sure to sign up for the TNB Book Club if you haven't done that yet. It's easy. Just visit thenervousbreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, okay, so now it's on to our main event. Uh, my guest today is Tao Lin. This is part two of a two-part conversation. Uh, part one, obviously, is already live. Uh, Tao's new novel, Taipei, is available now from Vintage Contemporaries. It is causing a stir in the world of publishing. Perhaps you've heard of it. Um, do I need to do an intro in part two? I feel like I already did the big intro in part one. Here he is, folks. This right here, without any further ado, is the second half of my conversation with Tao Lin. It just feels like they really mean it, and I can't convince them that it's not bad just because they don't like it. I get really upset. <laughs> what does that look like when you get really upset? Um, you don't seem like a yeller. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't yell. I just feel, I just say, like, I just try to explain to them. And my face probably looks depressed. Like, more just. There's something else I wanted to say about that, but I forgot it. It was, um. I get upset when. Just anytime anyone like makes it seem like it's wrong or stupid or something to like something, I feel depressed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I thought I felt like this especially in college with relationship to music, uh, and I know it. I mean, it happens in literature as well, but music just seemed like it was. Uh, 
people consumed more of it and it was, it's obviously quicker, you know, and I felt like there was some sort of social strata attached to which music you liked and how many shows yeah. you had seen and which concerts you had been to. And like, there was like something to be gained socially from having consumed the right things or having the right taste. And it, it always made me feel, uh, strange and a little depressed, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And just exhausted. Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, it just makes me feel exhausted, you know, where people are like using art as a way to build a social construct, essentially, and evaluate other people and, you know, uh, create an impression about themselves or something. You know, it's like some sort of rule book that doesn't need to be there. It's like, wait a minute, you know. But that's Yeah, it's like people who... It's the same with sports and politics, except in art, um, there's no, like, numbers. Like, in sports, you can say the Chicago Bulls are best because they score more points on average per game or the season than whatever other, every other team. And that would be a true statement based on that. But for art, you can't. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, I thought I heard the echo out. But for art, there are no numbers like that. And people also are, like, expressing themselves to try to make themselves feel better or to try to communicate with other people just to feel less lonely or something. But in, like, basketball, someone's not, like, shooting a basket to try to reduce your loneliness <laughs> so it's much more hurtful or more way more depressing when people talk about music and writing in the way they talk about sports and it's like it's very rare to find someone who doesn't do that I think yeah it's, it's I like think... if I say I like the Dave Matthews band even <laughs> like People just like make a face or something. I hate that. <laughs> I used to be it's into, really depressing. I used to be into the Dave Matthews band when I was in college. I had like a year and a half of intense fandom. You know, it was like right at that time when they were coming out. But I look back on it now, or I'll hear a song and I'll just be like, you know, what was I smoking? But, um, but I like Dude, it. I like them a lot. Yeah, I, mean, I like them still. Yeah, I mean, you know, like it made me happy and like. But then I start getting into it with myself. I'm like, why? Like, what's happened now? Like, now I'm too cool, or like now I'm so smart, and so you know, it's such a silly, yeah, it's such a silly process. Yeah, I mean, you did it just now. I feel like, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. You... That's what I'm saying. Oh. Yeah, I mean, like that's it. Like, I'll, I'll, I'm not immune to it. Like, I will, or I'll just have a moment, you know, because. It's more of an evalu it's less an evaluation of them than it is of me at the time. Do you know what I'm saying? Like was I conscious? Why was I at that concert, you know, like dancing like that or you know, like why was I wearing yeah. why was I wearing a tie dyed shirt? It just I can just evaluate the shit out of myself and then it's done in the context of them. And I think that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier, where I feel like people use this art, but it's really a way for them to say something about themselves or other people as opposed to like the art itself, you know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, yeah. 
someone shit talks something else, they're time out. They're communicating something about themselves. Right. Not about the work. But they're like making someone else feel bad. So do you feel having said that that like like how do you feel about negative book reviews? Like if your book gets panned do you feel like somebody who pans your book or somebody else's book is behaving in that way? Or do you feel like there's a place for like genuine criticism of a work as a way of creating a dialogue about it or whatever? If they define a context and a goal right. for it, then it would make sense. I think it's impossible though. To... And then there would be only the context and the goal for themselves. Like, they would have to say, like, based on what I want in life and what I know about what my context, this is what I think. And that wouldn't happen, I don't think. Have you ever written any literary criticism? Like, um, like a book review? I don't know. Book review. Yeah, I've written things, but probably no. I've written about books, but not anything saying whether it's good or bad. Maybe I have before, like, 2007. Because I I just, like, well, just, like, talking like this, it would be super interesting to me to, like, read a book review in, like, the New York Times book review by you with this, all this in mind. Do you know what I'm saying? Like. Um, yeah, that to me, cause I, well, I just wouldn't do it. Well, but I mean, it would Go be, ahead. it would be interesting for you to do it or, or to try to do it in a way that would subvert maybe the traditional, um, format because I don't understand people who can read book reviews. Uh, I mean, I can, every once in a while I can read one, especially if it's about a book I've read just to like get somebody else's thoughts about it or to see if there's like a counterpoint or if somebody agrees, but I, I just find it pointless or, or unhelpful. I don't know. It's hard for me to read them. Uh, and especially because yeah. a lot of them seem to be like, I like some things about this book, but there were some things I didn't like about this book. Or even if it's like a really positive review, like it's almost inevitable that about a paragraph or two before the end, the person will say, but... <laughs> There were some things that I, yeah. like, it's almost like an insurance policy in case somebody disagrees with them. It's like, well, I caught that too, but you know, I don't know. It just drives me crazy. It doesn't seem helpful or something, you know, or necessary. Yeah. Except it's never, I would, it's never like that. It's never, I like this and I don't like that. It's always, this was bad and that was good. Right. Yeah. It's and it's always like I don't know. It just feels always like kind of like a milk toast combination of the two. You know, it's like it never feels like or maybe I want it to be more decisive almost, but it just always feels like someone's hedging or that like the the praise is sort of laced with anger. <laughs> you know, like like I liked it but I sort of hated it or I don't know. They're just I I find myself unsatisfied and and I don't need it necessarily like I feel like I would, I get more, um, I find my way to more books through friends, like saying this is good or, uh, I enjoyed this or through like reading a book that I like and then figuring out or reading about what that author read, you know, that's often the way that it goes. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, when you <laughs> when you talk about yeah. uh, you talked about that depression and getting into writing, um, you know, as you got into college and you were going through workshop and stuff, did the depression lift? I mean, obviously it lifted somewhat, right? I mean, did did you feel like writing and getting into that and finding it as a uh, pursuit uh, helped you pick yourself up a little bit? Mm, I don't know. I. I really don't know what the depression means, I don't think, at all. Well, I can tell you, like, when I was more productive or less productive. But it's really hard to say, like, when I was depressed or not. And what about, uh, like, what about medicating, you know? I can't believe we've gotten this far into the interview. We haven't talked about it because it seems like everyone asks you about it. But, like, when it comes to... Um, drugs, and particularly drugs that are, uh, you know, uh, medical, pharmaceuticals, you know, like Adderall, Xanax, um, you know, and then into like MDMA and mushrooms and stuff like that. Like, how much of your intake do you feel is, um, medic, you know, medication? Like, are you medicating depression? Are you taking these things recreationally? Um, is Adderall, I know like a lot of Taipei was written on Adderall, correct? I mean, like how much of it is just like, this helps me work, you know, or makes me more productive. Um, I never viewed any thing as medication. I view those things like mostly in service of adding variety to my life, I think. So, like, uh, what kind of variety? Go ahead. What do you mean by variety? Just, well, for mushrooms, for example, I feel like Um, well, when I'm on mushrooms, I feel insane. Insane? In ways that I... Insane or in sync? I was saying in ways. (laughs) In ways that I don't ever feel when I'm not on mushrooms. So that just variety. Like and, and you're I know that we're like we were I remember we were emailing a while back about Terrence McKenna. Um Oh yeah. Like you're a fan of his? Yeah. Yeah. I find his ideas very interesting. Yeah. It's a, he's like he's an like he's maybe the most amazing talker I've ever heard. Like the guy's unbelievable. Um, yeah. Yeah. At first his voice turned me off. It was like a very nerdish voice, but I got used to it. I watched, and I watched a video where you could see him, and he, yeah, I like him. Yeah, he's like sort of hypnotic, but I, like, I I got into, like, there was a period uh, of, like, you know, a month or two where all I did when I would go, like, walk the dog or whatever was listen to him, or I'd be at the grocery store, and that alone, like, put me into a different state, you know? <laughs> um, cool. Is there a main what, what's like an idea behind that you, interests you? 
Well, I mean, I think it's just the basic. I mean, like uh, something he says repeatedly is that for people to not experiment with uh, hallucinogens is like for people to not have sex and to not like experience that part of life. And it just, you know, cause I, I did all of my experimentation with that stuff when I was, um, in my early twenties and I just sort of like drifted away from it and haven't done, uh, anything <laughs> like at that level or whatever since. But, uh, there's a part of me, I think that sort of was like, Oh, I'm, I'm done with that. Or I, I moved beyond that or it's sort of lame thinking really. And, you know, he, he just like, I guess gave me more confidence in the instincts of my youth and also made me at least stop and question, um, like, I don't know. I, I think there's a lot of validity and value in the psychedelic experience. And I think too often it gets brushed aside or lumped into some category, um, that's not positive or that, you know, it's just some sort of hedonistic idiotic thing. And, I think there's a lot to be gained, you know, uh, and he's very eloquent in talking about it. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's some things that probably he was wrong about, but, um, I think broadly he was, a uh, a really good deep thinker and a courageous person, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So I'm you- really interested in his idea about how, Um, we're moving, we're not moving, like, the human species isn't moving towards anything, but we're being pulled by a point in the future that, like, once we reach that point, we'll, like, advance to this or chained into something else. Yeah, what is I'm he, not making sense. Just no, no, no. <laughs> I know, but I remember because he talks about it, and it's like, what does he call it? Like the monolith, or not the monolith? He has some some word for it, like in the future. And here goes well, my, my memory. The moon, it's like the concrescence, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like he has this, like you know, this lingo, but he repeats that, and um, it does sort of feel like that. Like there's a lot of times when I listen to him where. I might not necessarily fully understand what he's talking about or um, I haven't had a chance to fully think it through, but there's just a strong sense in me that there's a lot of truth in what he's saying, even though it might sound kind of like uh, unusual or outlandish or something, you know, or abstract. It makes sense to me. I just can't explain it well. Yeah. yeah. It's just like everything's becoming more... um, computerized and they'll reach a point when and since information technology advances exponentially it's going to like move faster and faster how everything's going to change into like a computer and at some point we'll be able to, like, upload the information of ourselves into the computer. And since all the computers will be connected via, like, something like the Internet, then we'll just 
all be uploaded into like the same thing. And then at that point is, I think, like the point he's talking about where like, there'll be something you can't imagine now. And that's the concrete. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, so he's worth listening to, if nothing else. I mean, it's, it's strange to me that like somebody like him wouldn't have um, a bigger audience or something. It feels it feels depressing to me that like he's like that voice is marginalized. I guess maybe that's just where society is now. But like, I don't know. He doesn't strike me as being crazy. He strikes me as being. Uh, making an attempt to be sane. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with respect to like drugs and drug use, um, do you, do you feel like, do you ever worry about addiction or do you ever like, do you, do you check yourself? You know what I'm saying? Or, or is it something you feel like you have a, a good handle on from a control perspective? Um, I don't think I understand the word addiction. Like, if I was addicted to something, that would mean that this thing has control over me. And if I viewed my life in terms of that, like, I don't know how I would act each day. If I earnestly believe that this this pill had, like, mind control over me, <laughs> I just don't know what that would mean. But, yeah, I feel like I'm constantly, like, like debating, should I use this now? Should I wait a day? What's the point? It's a troubling... Like, I feel troubled that drugs exist sometimes. But I also feel, like, even before I had used any drugs in middle or high school... I felt probably as depressed as now. So. So it hasn't made things I, worse. It's, I can't tell at all. Do you? Do you, do you I mean, I can. Go ahead. I was going to say, do you ever see? Do you foresee a day in your future where you won't use any drugs? Yeah, there will be one day. Probably. I mean. <laughs> There will be days when I don't use any drugs, probably. But I, but mean, I don't foresee myself thinking, like, that's off-limits forever or something to anything. So if you live to be, like, 80, you might still be, like, eating mushrooms and seeing what happens. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> based on what I know now, I don't want to predict. Yeah. Because well, I viewed... I had the same troubling relationship with like with like food big time like I don't want to eat like a cookie or something and I debate like should I eat a cookie should I not the pros and cons and stuff like that yeah but no you, you like that's another thing about you and like reading you online especially early on was that uh, you wrote about food a lot and like vegan food and food choice. And um, I'm sort of in that same space where like I monitor what I eat because it has a big impact on how I feel. And I've never like, 
I mean, I sort of understand people who perceive food from like a sensual or, you know, purely uh, from a pure pleasure perspective. But like, to me, it's always like about fuel. Like I'm always thinking like, is this going to be good for me? Will I feel good if I eat it? Is it going to give me energy? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's what I feel too, to a big degree. Yeah. And so, but then I, I yeah. but then I love to eat a cookie and then like, I'll eat one and I'll be like, why did I just eat that shit that just isn't really helping me, but tasted good. I just got tricked. You know? <laughs> yeah. A cookie is like the least rewarding thing. Cause you only enjoy it for the, like the 10 seconds when you're biting it. Right. Once you swallow it, you, there's no, you get immediately the negative effects kick in. And there's no drug that is that like shitty. <laughs> Yeah. So what? So what do you eat? Can I ask you that? Like, because like, there's always like this debate online. Yeah. Like, I think that maybe two of the the principal debates about you online is like, does Tao have Aspergers and is Tao a vegan? <laughs> or at least there was a period. Oh, yeah. There was a period of time. So like, what do you eat? Like, you know, like, are you a vegan? Do you have any kind of like strict dietary regimen, or is it something like that you uh, have as an ideal, but you don't always adhere to? Um, my ideal is to only eat raw fruits and vegetables. And I'm um, probably, I do that three times a week, three days a week. But the other days I'll eat something else like chicken fingers or something. So you do eat meat. But the ideal, yeah, the ideal, I read a book recently called 80-10-10 that made a lot of sense to me. It's a diet of just raw fruits and vegetables with 80% of the calories being carbs, 10%, protein, 10%, fat. So it's like almost all fruit and then greens like spinach. And then, like, one avocado every three days or something like that. Something like that would be ideal. But I don't know if that's ideal because, like, I feel like eating the cookie provides some kind of variety or something. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, and that's the thing, too, is that I can be like, you know, I really need to eat well so that I can be so I can feel well and so that I can have energy and, you know, go about my business or whatever. But then there's also a part of me that's like, just enjoy the fucking cookie and like quit worrying so much. (laughs) You know, like I don't want to, I don't want to be like wound up so tight that I can't have a cookie. And so then I can easily convince myself that that's the right thing to do. And what I find, what I find too, is that like, there's so much being said constantly about food. Like it feels like it's an industry now in publishing. It's like, there's always a book out that's like on the bestseller list about what you should eat and like what the best diet is. And there's always, these books are always contradicting one another and you know, and I just feel like, um, it can be hard to sort of zero in. And so lately I've been saying to myself, just eat mostly plant-based diet, like eat, you know, water-based plant-based foods and natural foods and don't eat too much. (laughs) And you'll be okay. Yeah. And it's the best you can do. I mean, I don't know, you know? Yeah. But I also, I mean, yeah. I mean, not to, I don't want to like, 
preach or anything, but like, I also feel, um, like it's legitimate. Like I have legitimate, uh, concerns about food. That's like factory farmed and cruelty. And like that stuff affects me. Like, I don't like the idea of participating in that, you know, like I feel bad about animal suffering. And like, I feel like in our culture, uh, in America, you can sometimes be, uh, demeaned or considered silly for having that feeling. And it's like, dude, have you watched those videos? Like they're insane. You know, these poor creatures are treated horribly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. People, there's like a, I feel like there's a type of person. Never mind. A type of person. What? I just said never mind. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a terrible topic, you know? Everyone has their own personal feeling about it, but... Um, yeah. So, uh, I want to ask you about Taipei, um, you know, like, okay. just in terms of how you... Like, you know, the writing of it, uh, you know, I read... I want to say I read an interview with you and Giancarlo uh, de Trapano where you were talking about, yeah. you know, the process of writing the book and going to the library and... Uh, taking Adderall and what I found sort of like what I found sort of uh, I don't know relieving or nice to hear or I don't know there's something about hearing about other writers struggles that makes uh, me feel less lonely or something but just talking about how much uh-huh. how much self-doubt you experienced while writing it and how you you were like working on the book in the earlier stages and you could like pick up a book by somebody else and read like a paragraph of their book and be and be suddenly like, uh, you know, crushed by the feeling that like, I should write it like this, you know, or I should use this kind yeah. of voice. And like, just talk about how the yeah. book, how the book was written, like how it came to be, where the, uh, you know, the idea for it or. Okay. Um, what well, started with, with, I had a short story and then I was foreseeing that, like, I was not going to have any way to make any money unless I wrote and sold a book. But all I had was 20 pages, the short story at the point. So I emailed it Bill Clegg, or I emailed Bill Clegg asking if he would want to try to sell 20 pages in an outline to a publisher. And he said, yeah. So that happened. So then I started working on the book. And then I just kept working on it till it was finished. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that's how a book is written, ladies and gentlemen. But, uh, yeah. but I mean like that, let's, let's rewind a little bit because like the situation where you, you know, you email Bill Clegg, who's a big agent and who's actually published a couple of books, uh, with some success himself. Like that's not the easiest thing in the world for most writers to do. I guess you'd built up enough of a fan base or enough of a name for yourself that he was aware of your work. And then, and then the idea of being able to sell a work of fiction based on 20 pages as an, in an outline that's unusual too, especially for you got a fifty thousand dollar advance, correct? Yeah. So that's the thing was, Bill Clegg. I had emailed him like a year earlier, 
telling him that I liked his book, and he, I was like, I sent him my book, and he was like, actually, I already read it, and and then something positive about it. So we already had some kind of, we had communicate already. And then, so a year later, I, and we, and he was like, what are you working on now? And I said, I didn't have anything. So that was all we talked about. Then a year later, I emailed him with the other thing. And you didn't have an agent at that point? No. I was with Melville House. Okay, so you did those. You did the books with Melville House without a literary agent. Yeah, with that one, I just got one thousand five hundred to one thousand five hundred dollar advances for each of the books. Wow. Um, yeah. Why did, why did you say wow? No, I'm just like I was just thinking. I, you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of New York and just like surviving in New York and how small advances are and how difficult it is. <laughs> like that. Okay. In- I had. No, I was just saying like the, that entire like train of thought like raced through my mind in about 1.5 seconds. <laughs> oh. So yeah, I had jobs all through, all through my other books. Like part-time jobs. Doing what? Like just waiting tables and... In libraries and at at the restaurant here. Okay. And so with regard to Taipei, um, you know, you get this money ahead of time, which is a, a little bit unusual. Or, I mean, I guess you get you know, small advances, but you've got a sizable chunk of money and you're with a bigger house and Bill's representing you, like... Did you feel uh, pressure, like a, a higher degree of pressure to perform that was in any way stifling or difficult, or did it motivate you in a good way? I think I think I've always felt the same amount of pressure. Like, it just has to be... It just has to be, like... Not perfect, but... Like, it has to be, I can look at it and say, I've done as much as I can on this. Yeah. So, using what I have. So, I've, no, I didn't feel more pressure. Do you, how many, how many days a week do you work? Like, when you're working on Taipei, are you working seven days a week? Are you really, like, super disciplined about how you do it? Or is it more sporadic? Yeah, every, just my entire life, I would say. But... But I would have days where, like, I would think, don't look at today, not because I want to rest, but because, like, it'll be good to have one day without looking at it. But basically, my entire life would just be structured around And go to the library, peek on Adderall. Was most of the book, <laughs> was most of the book written on Adderall? Um... It just depends on how much, like, on Adderall, it's kind of hard to define also because depending on, like, there's only the, when I'm peaking on it count or, like, if I used it eight hours ago, there's still probably some in my system. No, I'm, but, I'm thinking of, like, the like the peaking. Like it's Adderall similar to, like, an amphetamine, right? It's just, like, when you're peeking on it, you're just like ultra-focused and energetic. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah. So, and, yeah. And, and like a good, let's say, because I've never done it. I feel, this is another thing I'm curious about. Like, I feel like a lot of writers are taking Adderall these days, and I feel, it might sound strange to say, but I feel sort of bad that I've never tried it. Or at least, like, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like deficient or something. Like, I want to, like, at least know what the experience is. Um, but, like, if you take Adderall and you're peaking for a couple of hours, uh, how many like how many pages can you get on a good session? Like, did you ever like shock yourself and write like a twenty page section of the book in like a short span of like a no. no okay that never happened. No, the thing is, probably a lot of it was written not on Adderall because probably ninety five percent of the time was spent editing the draft that I had like this. I had a draft of the thing, basically. The rest of the time is just working on that and working on passages throughout it. And the, so, go ahead. The Adderall thing. Some of it's just like an excuse to use Adderall, since Adderall makes you happy. And I don't know. But if you have more questions about Adderall, I'll, I'll answer them. <laughs> well, here's a question, just because of my own uh, naivete. But it's like you take the Adderall. Like I feel like most people who take Adderall, either on some sort of prescription or they take it uh, recreationally or whatever, tend to take it in tandem or in some sort of balance with Xanax. Like you see, so you take the Adderall, which winds you up. <laughs> And then you take the Xanax, which helps you get to, get to sleep. Is this a, is this like a ridiculous question or? No, no. I think like, well, for me, like two years ago, hearing of someone taking Adderall and Xanax at the same time would be like a joke. It'll be ridiculous because Adderall makes you more alert and stuff and Xanax calms you down. It would like not make any sense at all. But over time, more people have come to like enjoy both things at the same time. <laughs> so more people, it seems that I know, like to take Adderall and Xanax. But it's like a, seems like a, if, if, this was part of a downward spiral. Like that would be the next step from taking Adderall and then taking both Adderall and Xanax. Well, and does that mean they're like, what about like the danger? Cause isn't there like some sort of like uh, pharmacological danger in taking an upper and a downer? I sound like my mom, but you know what I'm saying? Like, isn't there a, yeah. uh, isn't there like, I mean, there are dangers in mixing pharmaceuticals. You have to be careful. And like, there is an element of, um, risk involved in taking a lot of pills. I mean, do you ever think about that or do you have concerns or do you ever worry that like, say young, uh, younger readers who might be reading your Twitter feed or something might, who might not have as, um, as a sophisticated, a sense of, you know, uh, what they're doing might start taking these things in a reckless manner or anything like that. Do you ever think about that? Yeah. And I think, I think that the long-term solution to 
situations where people are talking about thing using drugs or like killing people. The long-term solution to that is to try to spread the the way of looking at the world that is to not believe what you read but what you experience yourself and I think I try to do that like if every person in the world was able to read something or see something on the news and just be able to use their own brain to discern like you know what I'm talking about <laughs> yeah I mean no yeah I think I mean I think what you're saying is like people have to judge for themselves based on experience and shouldn't be swayed based on something they read or see that someone else is doing uh, yeah and me telling him if I went on Twitter and it's like bad or all is bad don't do it I would be feel like I would be teaching people to to base their actions on what other people say so I would not say something like that yeah well yeah that's the thing about so it I, it gets tricky well, I think I have expressed it somewhere else articulately. I just can't do it right now. Yeah. Well, I encourage people to Google my name and like the media or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, no, I mean, I think it's, I've had this conversation on this show even before. And, you know, when you start talking about this stuff, it gets, for me, it gets blurry very quickly, you know, because I can, I can think like in 10 different directions about it, but, um, to me, it's clear though. It's just, I just don't, the long-term solution is just to teach people to think for themselves. Yeah. It's not to like block out information. That's just a short-term solution. Right. Or to feel, I mean, do you feel, I guess like maybe like, there's a part of me, um, and maybe this is a, this stems from the fact that I have a kid now, but I sort of like, you know, I feel maybe more careful about what I say because I worry about what the ripple effect might be or how someone might perceive it or I don't know, but you're right. Ultimately people have to use their brains and it's not like I know, but, but it's, it's not like, yeah, if I had a kid, I think I would because a long-term solution would would not just... It would take, like, centuries or something. Or it's a century of 100 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that would, my kid would not, like... If I was more concerned about my kid, I wouldn't be focused on a long-term solution. So it's... It's just... I don't know the answer. Do you uh, do you want to have children? Like, can, are you, do you have? I mean, is that something you envision for yourself, or do you have any strong feelings one way or the other about that? I haven't thought about it. I mean, I've thought about it. I I feel open to it. It depends on when you ask me. Yeah. 
Are you in a relationship right now? Are you like dating someone? No. No. Um, and then Taipei, Taipei, like I feel like I feel like you're, um, you know, like Richard Yates and Taipei both deal with relationships, and I feel like you work uh, autobiographically, or at least in uh, yeah. you know, like you know, I you obviously stray from uh, the facts of your existence. You know, you you fictionalize here and there, but I feel like you have a strong interest in making your work autobiographical and some sort of uh, direct record of your life. Is that Accurate? Um, um, no. I think the autobiographical element is largely just because I view my memory as material to work on and make into a novel. Because my memory is probably like if you wrote it all out, it's probably like a 10 million word first draft of something. And it would just take my entire life to write like as connected and long and dense first draft. So since I already have that, I use that and edit it into a novel, I think. I don't, I'm not trying to record my life. But you I mean, your, your work is definitely, I mean, I don't know. I kind of, I feel like there's, I, I have you categorized in my brain as like a, a writer of fiction who works quote unquote autobiographically as opposed to somebody who's writing like, you know, I guess every, I don't know, every, every writer's working or every artist is working autobiographically in some vein, but it feels to me like, there's less of a there's less separation between you and the work than there is in say somebody who's writing like fantasy fiction or you know something that's yeah it's more explicitly like imaginative or otherworldly or something. Yeah. Yep. And what I what do you think about what I just said? The memory. Uh, well, that's. I mean, I think that's it. I mean, I think you're you're working. You're using your memory as. Uh, a primary creative resource in your fiction. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, because a fantasy book, like, it would take... No, 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 go ahead. Uh, but, like, but with regard to relationships as, like, a theme in your work and, like, you know, human relationships and the dissolution of relationships and... Um, how difficult relationships are, you know, to maintain between people and especially when it comes to intimacy and stuff like that. Like, um, yeah, you know, have you, do you, I don't know. I mean, I, I know, like, I know the backstory. I think a lot of us know that you and Megan Boyle were together. You got, I remember you guys got married, yeah. you got married on a whim in Las Vegas. Um, like yeah. talk about, talk a little bit about that. Like, was that, was that, that was serious. You really wanted to marry her. <laughs> it wasn't like some sort of, uh, stunt or some sort of like joke between you. Um, it's hard to say what it was exactly. How I did, mean, how did it feel? <laughs> at the t how did it feel at the time? I mean, were you guys on drugs and partying in Las Vegas and like woke up and were like, Oh my God, we're married. Or was it, 
more like no, a romantic no. a romantic gesture where you're like you felt really good and you're like let's get married and then you did it you know or yeah that's kind of yeah that one and just that it just seemed funny it's fun it's more the second one you just described yeah and so i don't know like do you have um I mean, have you, do you struggle with relationships with people? Like, do you find yourself able to maintain friendships, or do you feel, do you feel like the uh, the dissolution of that relationship inspired Taipei, or you know, is that something you were trying to kind of wrestle with in the writing of the book? Um, no, that re- I feel like all my relationships have like. Time just ended naturally with both people sort of just like I mean um, I mean I still talk to Megan and we're not we don't hate each other or anything like that at all. Yeah, I've noticed that. You guys are like have a really I mean, it seems like very civil. It's it's different than most breakups, you know, where most of the time I think people just never talk to one another ever again. And that has always seemed to me because I have like exes from my youth or whatever that I just like, I I haven't heard from them (laughs) since, since it happened. And it, it always has felt very strange to me and sort of wrong, like that you could date someone or, um, even be married to someone and then somehow like never speak to them again. Like that seems awful to me. I hate that, you know? Yeah. But they could also just be prioritizing because now they get more time to speak to their new boyfriend or whoever. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, I mean, people move on with their lives as they should, but like it just, I guess like in my idealistic mind, it's like, oh my God, like we were like, you know, we dated or we were married or whatever. And like, that means we should always like check in once a month and see how each other's are doing. You know, it's like that kind of like idealistic thinking, but it's just not how life, yeah. all, life doesn't always work out like that. Yeah, uh, I don't have any answers in this regard. So I, I guess uh, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go. I've I've kept you for a while, but uh, I want to ask you about uh, your fans uh, before we hang up okay. because I feel like you inspire uh, imitation. I think a lot of people sort of adopt. It's it's like I think with good writers or with writers with a kind of a singular voice, it's a common thing where like you read them. And you find yourself writing like them or like talking like them or something. And there's certainly like a lot of Taolin mimicry that happens online in particular, but also among authors who have published books. Um, so have you done anything in particular to cultivate that, do you think? Or is that something that just sort of happened organically or is it both? I don't know. Probably... Well, in many interviews, I directly tell people that in the EEE, I copied many elements of Anne Beattie's Chili Scenes of Winter. And then in my story collection, I modeled it after Laurie Moore's Like Life and was like highly influenced by her and copied many of her techniques and her talent. So by saying that, that might have cultivated or like made people see that it's okay or something. 
But so you, I have it like email people, telling people to write like me. No. But you you certainly notice it. I mean, you you must notice when like people are. There's a certain aesthetic. It's like the the Helvetica, the lowercase, the you know. There's certain things that I feel like you have been somewhere either at the forefront or near the forefront of in terms of how people write, especially online, you know, internet writing and stuff like that feels like it takes a lot from an aesthetic that you cultivated. Like, do you, like, where did that come from? Like, were you, I don't know. Did you sit, how did you arrive at Helvetica? <laughs> Helvetica. Huh. Let me think. Um, I used to use Garamond, and I like that the most. At some point, I don't remember how. I'm sure there was a thing, though. But for lowercase, I mean, everything, there was a certain kind of thing that I copied from Ellen Kennedy, I feel like. Certain tone and lowercase thing, maybe. I don't know. Are you asking what I got those things? I don't know. I just I just feel like there's some sort of like cumulative uh you know, like the combination of all these things, you know, and like the the sort of deadpan and the neutral there's like a neutral tone, you know, and there's like the no question marks and uh I, I feel like there's like a a composite that you you know, that basically equals your aesthetic. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I feel like I can yeah. I can point them out, and I can't do that with a lot of writers, you know, or with most writers, I can't do that. Where I go, oh wow, this is like a distinct aesthetic that is happening, and you know, it sounds like a lot of it just was like kind of like an intuitive process that it sort of snowballed as it went, and now here it is. But um, I don't know. It's, it's it's fascinating to me that it happens, you know, and uh, it doesn't sound like it's something you like preconceived or like said this is what I'm going to do as a way of making people interested <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you uh, do you hear from you know do you have a rec- uh, a sense of how uh, enthusiastic or interested uh, your readers are in you like do you hear from people a lot sometimes usually if someone emails me If it's a long email, I don't know. I think I don't hear from that much. I don't think because I don't encourage it at all. Because I don't like I don't. Just my entire thing, way of thinking about good or bad in art, it doesn't place me in like a position of knowing anything more than anyone else. So, like, if someone comes to my blog and reads my blog and sees that, like, I talk about writers I like the most, like, the most, um, like, I won't aggrandize them or say they're the best. I'll just be like, I like this book. So, 
they'll feel less inclined to tell me like you're the best or something. Right. But but you must you must appreciate uh, people's enthusiasm, right? I mean, like that they're appreciating your work, and I mean, I don't know. I just, um, I, I feel like I let me let me phrase it a different way. Like I feel like I sense that Taipei could. Uh, if not like, you know, explode or whatever, but I feel like it could be a significant uh, step forward in terms of how many people you reach and how many, you know, new readers you get. And I just have this sense of like, there's buzz building and this thing could go. And like, do you have a sense of that or no? Sense of that. Like a feeling that it might go well. Like, do you know, like what, are you optimistic? Do you have a good feeling or are you too superstitious to allow yourself such a thing? Or do you feel like, it's fucked. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's fucked, but I don't know. I mean, I think it'll go well because uh, probably one of my main obstacles before is being taken seriously in vintage is a press. I feel like that that is taken seriously. So I think it'll probably get reviewed a lot in places that earlier didn't review me. And you got like Brett Easton Ellis just, tw- you know, he tweeted about how you're like the most, uh, what is it? Like the unique prose stylist of your generation. That's pretty heady stuff. Like, Yeah. And he also said, which doesn't mean Taipei isn't a boring book. <laughs> he, but my publisher asked if, if we, we could just use the first part and he said, yeah. So have you been in touch with him? Have you, like, emailed with him or anything? Um, like I a- met him in 2010 at a reading. Like, you guys really, like, hung yeah. out and, like, exchanged words? Or was it more like he just signed your book and said thanks? No. Well, the first thing he said was... Well, I had... I think I was giving him the galley of Richard Yates, and he was like preemptively saying like I don't blurb anymore and then he was like you got a lot of mileage out of Dakota Fanning and he said something about having read my all my prose books and that was it oh well that's cool I mean you know there's that I mean I love I love following him on Twitter like there's not much that gets it doesn't seem like there's much that gets past him you know like he's I don't know yeah he's got his eye on everything, it seems like, and he's a funny tweeter. <laughs> yeah, I hope. I'm surprised how how he never makes any typos. Yeah, he's got an impeccable <laughs> usage. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, listen, man, I uh, am so pleased to have had a chance to talk with you. I'm excited about it, and I uh, I thank you for your time. And for what it's worth, <laughs> I, I have a good sense about uh, I have a good sense about Taipei, and I, I wish you all the best with it. Thank you for having me. All right, you guys, that's it. That is Tao Lin. Be sure to go get his novel, Taipei. It's out there now from Vintage. You can find Tao online at taolin.info. You can follow him on Twitter at Tao underscore Lin. And he's also on the Facebook. And hey, uh, while you're at it, be sure to go get Matt Bell's new novel, In the House, Upon the Dirt, Between the Lake and the Woods, published by Soho Press. It's uh, the official June selection of the TNB Book Club the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and you can sign up for that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club in the menu bar. Uh, Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, except 
for the music that played during the tweeting portion of the monologue. That is a track called Late October by Brian Eno and Harold Budd. Uh, hey, please remember to go get the app, the free official Other People app, the official app of this program. It is available now, free of charge for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best and most convenient way to listen to this program, to access premium content, and the full archives, etc. So please go get the app if you haven't done that already. It's free. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think that's it. What am I going to do right now? I'm going to go for a bike ride. I think I'm going to go ride around the city. I like doing that. Some people don't like doing that. I like to ride around a city on a bike. It's a little treacherous, but it helps me uh, clear my head to ride a bicycle in heavy traffic. I need to, uh, I need to go to target. I need to get some note cards. So maybe I will ride there. I need some colored note cards. I really do. And, uh, I also need, uh, some kale. Do they sell kale at Target? Please remember that Wordsworth suffered from chronic headaches and that Paul Salon's body wasn't discovered in the Seine until 11 days after he stepped off the Pont Marbeau, Pont Mirabeau, in a tragic suicidal leap. Did you get that? Paul Salon jumped off the, uh, off the Pont Mirabeau, it's a bridge, uh, into the river Seine, and then 11 days later, they found him. I'm sorry I told you that. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Tao Lin. Thanks to Matt Bell. Thanks to Vintage Press, Soho Press, all the presses of the world. I'll be back again on uh, Wednesday with another episode, another author, another conversation. It's two shows a week. You know how it works. Sundays and Wednesdays, uh, you know the drill, right? Okay. I think that's it. I feel like I'm talking too much. (laughs) 